0: Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Well, good morning from my side, and welcome to everyone that has maybe joined us since we started off with the lounge a little bit earlier. Uh, We are doing things a little bit differently again today, Uh, and that is because pretty much everybody is behind the screen, so I'm grateful that we have at least a handful of people that are helping make this happen today, so I'm not completely just speaking to uh, a camera only, but we are starting a brand new series today on the sermon on the Mount. And our prayer, our hope is that there is something about Jesus' manifesto that we catch. This is arguably the most powerful, the most important, the most life-giving sermon ever shared. Uh, this is quite literally Jesus' explanation, his, his best effort at trying to uh, explain to his followers what Following him might look like what effect that might actually have on our hearts. What effect that might have on our hands. Um, it is countercultural. It is upside down. There are times where it doesn't make sense. If you read the whole sermon, which by the way is in Matthew chapter five and six and seven, so if you read those three chapters. Um, if there 's nothing in there that challenges you if there 's nothing in there that messes with your head if there 's nothing in there that causes you to to kind of like want to study further or ponder or or maybe even push back and and justify you know a difference a difference of opinion, then I would argue that maybe we 're not reading it sincerely and properly and accurately because I don't know about you, but there's stuff in there that messes with my head. Things like turning the other cheek when someone slaps you, or if you're being oppressed and abused, uh, the the attitude that God actually wants us to have. Where, uh, I mean, we'll get into this at a later stage, so don't anybody go and cut off limbs, but there's one part where it says that if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Again, I want to be clear. We're not encouraging anyone to go blind themselves, but, but where we want to understand some of the heart behind What it is that Jesus has expressed as what it means, like like what it will look like. And so today I think more than anything else, I want to try and help us get a, a picture almost as though we're looking up to a mirror. So I don't want you to be overwhelmed by the standard that I think Jesus is being set. In fact, in fact, the 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 reality that we might find it overwhelming should be the very thing that drives us to our dependency on God. So the stuff that might discourage us, the stuff that might make us feel flip, how am I ever gonna be that or do that or or change that or, or be that kind of person who always responds with grace and love and mercy, that is exactly what should make us aware of our need for God. Because the reality is you can just be a good person by yourself. Now, first of all, we have to figure out what, our definitions of good is, if you think that you can be a good person by yourself or good enough by yourself without needing God's supernatural help, well then frankly, we don't need God. But then we've created our own religion. We've created our own way towards ultimate fulfillment and eternal life. This is Jesus' manifesto. This is his description of what his followers would look like, what their hearts would be, what their minds would be. And I honestly do believe that there's a part of that that should actually mess with our heads. The bottom line, though, is that it should be different. Not different in an ugly way. Like, it really shouldn't be different in an ugly way. But, But it can be different in a way that's not ugly, and yet people may not agree with you. And we'll get into that in a few moments. The reality is that you can do everything right. You can love people. You can love God. You can try and serve others. You can be kind and generous and patient and meek and and yet people can still turn against you and persecute you, and that's okay because there, there have to be some things that are different. If if someone who is who holds Satan and Jesus up in equal terms is no different to me, well then I have to ask myself whether or not I'm following one or the other. So, so there shouldn't be this indifference. There should be a difference, but that difference should be life-giving. In fact, in this first chapter, chapter five of the book of Matthew, uh, we'll look at this next week, from verse 13 onwards, Jesus actually talks about how that difference should be salt. In other words, it it adds seasoning, it it adds flavor, and it should be light. So it should be salt, and it should be light. In fact, he goes on to say that if the salt loses the saltiness, like, what's it worth? And that's a bit of a rhetorical question, because he's saying it's, like, if we're not salty, well, then you've got to ask yourself whether or not we're actually following Jesus. I'm not talking about when you sweat a lot and you taste salty. I'm talking about in terms of our, our character, but... You'll be amazed at how much people have debated over and argued over and, and, and disagreed and differed over certain parts of the Sermon on the Mount, and again, you'll understand why as we get into it in the weeks ahead. But I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. Our goal is not just to study it. Our goal is not just to be challenged or inspired or encouraged. The goal has to be for us to actually obey The goal has to be for us to actually keep approaching it with a posture, with a heart that's saying, God, help me to see what I don't see. Help me to know what I don't know and help me to be who you've called me to be. God, show me what you want to show me and help me to obey. Because again, by the way, the Sermon on the Mount ends. Literally the last story that Jesus tells that you'll you'll hear us refer to regularly is found at the end of Matthew chapter seven where he says that it's not about the people who just hear my words. It's only those who put them into practice. Their house is like a house that's built on a rock and it will withstand the storm. So it's not about hearing it, it's not just about knowing more and it's not about being able to win an argument. Um, In fact, there may even be parts of the Sermon on the Mount where, where maybe our interpretations even differ slightly. I don't think the goal should be for one of us to win the debate or the argument over what that particular verse means. I think it has to be a case of God. Help me to receive and to adjust and to be who... You've called me to be. So, today we're taking a look at what is popularly known as the Beatitudes, it actually comes from, from a word that is not in the English language, it's not actually specifically referring to attitudes, that word actually refers to blessings. Well, even, even blessings isn't the perfect uh, English translation, there is no perfect English translation. Um, it's from the, from, from the Greek word makarios, which just the closest thing that we can get to that is that it is to be blessed. Um, or in the African uh, Bible commentary, they refer to how it's almost like a congratulatory expression. Where it's like blessed. Or you're like, 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 like you're blessed if you are poor in spirit. So, so it's almost like congratulations. You are blessed. But for our purposes, I believe that, that the language that maybe best describes what the Beatitudes are addressing. I do believe that it's actually addressing our attitudes and I believe it's addressing the blessings that come with it. Now, you might argue about the chicken or the egg. Well, is it that we're blessed that we have the right attitude? Or is it that we have the right attitude that we're blessed? Yes. Like, I think, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's like intertwined. Like, I don't think that we can do anything but respond to God. But sometimes that's such a quick process. And the more we keep responding, the more we keep experiencing. So, again, don't get too hung up on the technicalities. Let's read together quickly. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 to 12. Hang in there with me. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, went up on a mountainside and sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Just interesting side note is that he was teaching his disciples, but he was also teaching the crowds. Like, that's okay. Please don't get discouraged when you see people that claim to be Christians or people that are going to church or say they go to church, but you don't feel like they're living the way you think followers should be living. Like, that's okay. Jesus addresses He's sincere disciples and followers, and he addresses the crowd. And I think that every healthy church, at least in terms of its public services, should have people that are at all stages of their journey, including those that are exploring Christianity. So don't don't, don't get too discouraged and worked up when you think, ah, they're hip. No, no, they're not hypocrites. If they're not actually serving God, but they are exploring, that's okay. Anyway, uh, he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted. You understand when I say that this is so counterculture? Like, what do you mean we're blessed when we're being persecuted? Because of righteousness, for this is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, not because you're being a jerk, like if it's for the sake of Jesus. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus isn't saying that you'll get everything you want to and that you'll be vindicated and justified and, and you know, have some kind of ticker tape parade that is taking place for you, uh, you know, if you do the right thing and if you respond to uh, persecution correctly in this life. I mean, you may or you may not, but in heaven, so in eternity, you will get your reward That is is such a radically different perspective. Again, just think about just that part alone. The fact that we are living for eternity and not living with a temporal now mentality. Because if it's only about now, well then obviously we're going to live very differently. Then we're going to try and suck the the marrow out of life. We're going to try and get get, get the most pleasure and the most joy, which is what hedonism refers to. And then we become narcissistic, where we're just living for, for our own, uh, adventure and 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 my own agenda and to get what I, no no guys when we are following Jesus and not asking him to follow us you see the world the world wants wants things to bless us and help me achieve my agenda my goals no no but this is again it's countercultural it's the upside down kingdom when we're following Jesus we're saying that actually my agenda goes out the window God what's your agenda and help me to live with that in mind and help me to live with an eternal perspective. When we're, when we're viewing things, when we're viewing suffering through an eternal perspective, when we are viewing persecution through an eternal perspective, when we are uh, experiencing or, or, or viewing delayed gratification or responding with meekness instead of being able to vindicate and justify ourselves through an eternal lens, it just, it just changes everything. In fact, even right now, I would encourage you, maybe there's a challenge that you're facing, maybe there's an obstacle, maybe there's something that that you're struggling with. Can I encourage you, even just before we move on, just to actually ask God to help you to view it through an eternal lens. Maybe you're going through an incredibly challenging season in a relationship and you care, like you love this person or these people and, and it's just so draining and so frustrating. But when we look at it through an eternal lens, and if we are secure in God's, so in other words, if we're not needing to be successful, no, no, God, we're just wanting to be obedient, but reviewing it through an eternal lens, it's amazing how much we're able to persevere. So, these, these attitudes and blessings, there are eight of them. In summary, it refers to the poor in spirit, those who mourn, to the meek, the, those who hunger and thirst. For righteousness, to the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. Jesus knew that one day would be translated into English and that I like alliteration. So the last three have P's and that works really, really well. But then he also talks about the privileges of the followers of Jesus. And that is that they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They'll be full. They will receive mercy. They will see God. They'll be called children of God. And again, it's interesting that, by the way, the, the blessing that is described for the first beatitude and the last beatitude are both that they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So let's take a look at them in part. Guys, if I tell you that I've spent a lot of time studying and trying to, trying to get my head around this stuff, it is an understatement. I think I've been reading the better part of 15, 16 different commentaries and scholars trying to make sure that I'm getting my head around each of these correctly, and it's impossible to relay it. In detail. This isn't a Bible study. I want to just kind of like just create a bit of an itch maybe that you actually go and research a bit more yourself. But more than that is for us to actually reflect on our hearts. So let me take a look at these eight very, very quickly. Number one is the poor in spirit. Matthew 5 verse 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just so you know, there is some debate among scholars whether it's the materially poor or whether it is those who are poor in in spirit, as in the humble. They they recognize their moral bankruptcy, and there there are reasons why there's a debate, and I understand it. Luke, uh, in his account, his gospel account, actually references four of the Beatitudes that are mentioned in these eight, and one of them is the poor, Excepting, he just says the poor, uh, not the poor in spirit. So this is one of the the areas that's maybe debated the, the most, although I've got to say that probably, I think, excepting for one or two of those 15 or 16 scholars, Everyone leans heavily towards arguing why it's referring to the poor in spirit, and to me, that is more consistent with what the rest of the New Testament describes in terms of who it is that will inherit the, the kingdom. It's not just those who are materially poor, although I do think that there's a good chance that people that are materially poor tend to be they tend to be a bit more inclined towards being poor in spirit, because they recognize their helplessness and recognize their need. But the reality is, and those of you that have traveled or if you know much about, about going into, into parts of Africa and Asia and other parts, that poverty, like physical material poverty can also lead to crime, it can lead to witchcraft, it can lead to, to looking to something else to, to meet that need. So that's why I, I'm, I, cannot, I cannot tell you that I think this is referring simply to those that are materially poor. I think that this applies to all of us and it is those of us who recognize our moral bankruptcy, our our inability, not only to save ourselves as a one-self, but our inability to ultimately transform ourselves. We are responsible for putting effort into the practices and the habits and habits and, and, and connecting with God and growing in a relationship with Him. But even then, the result is up to God, like God actually forms fruit in us. And so... Our, our big challenge, and I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus starts off with, in my language, I would use the word humility. I think that Jesus is starting off with how big a role. Um, in terms of our attitude, there is a need for humility. Some of you are familiar with that passage where it says that God gives grace to the humble and he opposes the proud. But even uh, the well-known passage in Ephesians 2 verse 9 says, salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. Or Romans 5.8 says that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So, so when we were not able to do anything, some of you know my story about getting stuck in Suicide Gorge with my younger brother and Ivan Donson and another guy and how my younger brother was, beca- you know, becoming hypothermic and the sun was going down and we, we were very mindful that if help didn't come before the sun went down completely, we were gonna be stuck overnight and I couldn't see how he was going to survive the evening. And then we kind of heard the sound of this chopper coming over the ridge. It was cold, it, we were wet, it was a whole long story, but nothing has ever illustrated for me more powerfully how helpless we are to save ourselves in a spiritual sense as what I realized that day where there was, n- we, there was no way for us to carry him out. It would have taken us hours and, and he couldn't move from, he couldn't move one meter from where he was to where he, he was in so much pain. He, so, so for me, there was this incredible, it was this incredibly humbling experience to, to see this help arrive that we could do nothing to generate. And and even as we were like flying out of this area, I, I can't explain the level of gratitude that I had towards the, and these, are, these were volunteers. I think one of the three or four people on the, on the helicopter were actually paid, the rest were volunteers. So, so you felt the sense of like, geez, I wish I could repay you somehow. Like you, f- you know, you feel, Grateful. In other words, I think that the appropriate response is not guilt. It's gratitude. Next time you're tempted or someone like almost tries to use what Jesus has done for you to make you feel guilty, just push back a little bit and, and try and get to the essence of what they're getting at because it's not about feeling guilty and guilt doesn't change us, but gratitude changes us. And I think that the humble are grateful for what... So we recognize our need for God and we recognize what he's done for us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Number two, mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now I've got to tell you that for the most part, I've made reference to this passage in at funerals and, and when people are struggling. And I don't think that that's incorrect because I think that there are plenty of other scriptures that suggest that God cares about the brokenhearted and cares about those who are grieving and mourning. But again, most of the scholars that I've read lean heavily towards describing that this is actually a grief that we feel over sin and it ties in with the first beatitude which is that of humility where we recognize our need for God and here um, we believe that Jesus is actually describing that there is a concern like there is a burden there is even a grieving over our over I believe our own sin but also the sin in the world and the reason that I want to emphasize this is the in two parts. Number one is personally, we've always got to kind of live in this tension of, of there's so much grace that, w- that we need to be aware of and grateful for. But we don't want to ever misunderstand that to where we water down and, and, and forget the price that it actually cost Jesus for us to have that forgiveness. So, so, so I think it's important that we do care when we are walking away from God, when we are rejecting God, when we are making choices that are not good for us, for our relationship with God, for those around us. But secondly, I want to also encourage those of you, if you're anything like me, that sometimes just become overwhelmed with just the amount of brokenness and depravity and injustice in the world around us. Because we are living in a fallen, sinful world. I, I struggle to get my head around when kids especially are the victims of abuse and and neglect and and over the last couple of years i've been more freaked out than ever before with corruption amongst politicians and and in governments and i'm saying that i think that there's a level of that that should grieve us crime should grieve us people being mistreated and broken and hurt and abused and 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 foreigners and the poor being being oppressed and and exploited that should bother us and i actually think so, so if I'm being completely vulnerable with you, probably the, the, the time in my life that I've struggled the most, and this was especially my in my early twenties. Yes, I was a deep, overly intense thinker in my early twenties. The issue that actually caused me to wrestle over my faith in God more than anything else was actually this. What I'm describing, where we, especially where I would see kids suffering, and some of the some of the just I struggled. To reconcile that. And by the way, I still can't fully, I mean, I can tell you theologically the fact that we live in a fallen world and and that Satan is the prince of the air and that he's actually, he's been delegated, you know, relative control over those whose lives are not surrendered to God. But that doesn't take away the grief and the mourning. And so I think that there's something in that process where God is saying, you will be comforted. Don't, Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Again, this isn't, like, we're not home yet. Don't expect it all to make sense. Don't, like, we shouldn't be numb to that stuff. So, so don't, be, don't be put off when you are feeling the pain of living in a sinful, broken world and where you're seeing hurt people hurt people. I, I hope that's making sense. Um, in Revelation 21, verse 3 to 4, it says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home He's now among his people. So so a lot of these Beatitudes, by the way, is referring to, to what we call, it's um, yeah, it's kind of like in an ecclesiastical sense, where, where where it is, actually I don't even think that's the right word, but where we are referring to the end times or to the other side of eternity. And that's what this passage in Revelation is referring to. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. That's a big deal, by the way. God himself will be with them. In other words, if you don't want God, you won't want heaven. Okay, you won't want one. God, God will be the, 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 main, the main reason that there's so much joy and peace. And anyway, and then verse 21, he goes on to say, I will wipe every tear from their eyes. So, so he, he's not promising that there'll be no mourning right now, but one day he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. So I just want to encourage you if, you, if you have been mourning some of the dysfunction in your life, some of the hurts, some of the stuff that has that worked out, or where you, I think maybe more than anything else, I think where, you're seeing, where you see a child or a grandchild or a niece or a nephew or, or, or someone that you care about suffering and there's nothing that you can do about it, I don't have trite words for you. I just want to encourage you that one day, one day, every tear, will be wiped from your eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, or crying, or pain. These things will be gone forever. Followers of Jesus who are living in an upside down kingdom, a counter-cultural kingdom, realize that this isn't home, and that one day it is all going to be different. Number three refers to meekness. Matthew 5 verse 5 says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Now, if you're going to read this objectively and rationally, you're going to think that is completely crazy because it's the arrogant, it's the powerful, it's those who are most educated, it's the privileged, it's those who, can, who seem to be able to, to, to do whatever they want to with, 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 with impunity and just get away with stuff that seem to inherit the earth. And on a superficial level, You'd be right. (laughs) But again, this is speaking, I believe, of the one day. And one day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And those who are going to rule the earth are not going to be, I'm not going to use names, but they're not going to be some of the people that might come to your mind when you think of the the brutal, abusive, bullying politicians and CEOs. It's going to be the meek. And the meek, as I'm sure many of you have heard, are not the weak, but rather it is those who are self-controlled. It's especially power under control. Jesus was meek. Jesus was so far from weak. (laughs) Jesus was meek. Again, I want to remind you that no one was able to take his life. He gave his life up. He could have called 10,000 angels to come down in a moment and remove him from the cross. No, no. That was the epitome of meekness. He he had all power. Guys, think about how crazy that is that he could have gotten off the cross at any moment. He could have gotten off the plan at any stage. He continued to submit himself to this injustice, to this unfairness, because he cared about something greater, and that's you and me. And so I want to encourage you, sometimes being right is not enough, and sometimes being meek is correct, where, where even though you know that, or you're convinced at least, that you're right and this is wrong, that you don't use your power and your strength to oppress and abuse and exploit others, but where you actually use it to serve others if you're a Christian and you're a leader or you're someone that has wealth or any type of even even social capital if you have influence if you're able to do anything if you're if you're just in a group of friends at school and you kind of know in the back of your mind that people kind of you know go with like you have influence they you know your your opinion matters a little bit more can I encourage you to use that well and use it Wisely, blessed are the meek. Number four refers to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now many of us hunger and thirst for other stuff, and unfortunately, our appetites tend to overpromise and under-deliver, but there is an appetite that will never overpromise and underdeliver. If we will feed this appetite for God, for what matters. In fact, some some people argue that is righteousness and justice. Righteousness refers to our relationship with God, justice refers to our relationship with people. If we will hunger for right relationship with God and for right relationship with people, I'm just telling you, regardless of what else is going on, I believe that there's a level of contentment and fulfillment that we will experience. Um, it's been argued, and I agree with this, it makes sense to me that there are three types of righteousness or three levels of righteousness. One is legal righteousness. That's referring to our, to our relationship with God, this justification. So, so Jesus has made us right with God, full stop. Nothing you can add to it. So it's almost like a legal spiritual righteousness. Then there's a moral righteousness, which is right living. And again, I just want to encourage you that the more we love God and the more we allow him to love us, the more we will want to live in a way that pleases him. It's not going to be a legalistic guilt, condemnation-driven thing. It's going to be, no, no, I I want to live the way that God wants me to live. So there's a legal spiritual righteousness, there's a moral righteousness, and then there is a social righteousness, and that is where we care about justice in the world, freedom from oppression and exploitation. We should care. Christians should care. Followers of Jesus should care about the needs that are around us, the inequalities that are around us, the fact that South Africa is still to this day one of, one of the countries in the world that has the greatest uh, wealth gap. There are, there are incredible needs. We should care. We should care. That's not the way to salvation, but because we're saved, how do we not have Compassion, which leads us to number five, which is the merciful. Matthew 5 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And again, you might think, okay, chicken, egg, like, is it because I receive mercy first that I show mercy? is because as I show mercy, I'll receive mercy. Again, I've got to say yes for the most part, but I would also argue that everything starts with God. And I would say that it's only to the extent that we receive mercy, it's only to the extent that we accept mercy, because it's always offered. Grace and mercy is always offered. It's only to the extent that I receive God's compassion and His mercy that I am moved to be compassionate and merciful to others. In fact, I I can't help arguing that if I can withhold forgiveness from somebody else, I have to question the extent to which I understand how much God has forgiven me of and this might offend some people and i and i and i do not mean this insensitively because some people have experienced gross injustice and i'm not, and forgiveness doesn't mean that you don't pursue justice it doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to forgive doesn't mean that you trust again or that you even reconcile again but to but to withhold forgiveness so where so where i am holding on to revenge and vengeance and i'm wanting to be their judge i'm just telling you that as long as i'm doing that there is no way that i am aw- sufficiently aware of what i deserve in the natural there's no way that I'm sufficiently aware of just how much God has forgiven me of. And again, I don't know about you, but there are so many times in my life where I, where, where I feel like God is being compassionate. I feel like God is being kind when I don't deserve it. He's, he's, giving me, he's not giving me the, the bad I deserve, and he's giving me much better than I deserve. And again, it's only as we realize God's compassion in our lives that we can't help but be compassionate others the sixth beatitude refers to those who are pure in heart blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God the pure in heart of the sincere the opposite of the pure in heart I believe is hypocrisy so where we are where we are you know trying to trying to hold on to masks which might work with people it doesn't work with God okay I've, I've said it many times we're the only ones that are surprised when we get honest with God God knows the truth Already, and so and so this speaks of sincerity, it speaks of an undivided loyalty. We're we're in a kingdom, either he's the king or he isn't. Just so you know, God's kingdom is different. This isn't a democracy, okay? He's the king, he's the master, <laughs> I'm the servant, he's he's the potter, I'm the clay. He gets to say what he wants, and I and either either I'm all in or I'm not in at all. And Those who are are pure in heart, like as we as we continue to reject things that are that compete for our attention and affection, as we continue to make Him the most important thing in our lives, and again we'll see this later on in Matthew six thirty three as we get into the series, as we seek first God, His kingdom, and His righteousness, all like just like everything else falls into place. Followers of Jesus are pure in heart. Number seven, they are peacemakers. By the way, interesting note, and this is really important. Please don't miss this. I should have said this at the beginning. I'm really sorry that I didn't. Please don't miss this. If you forget everything else I've said, Jesus is not describing eight different areas for us to, to work on. Where, where like Some of us are like really good at the, the, the peacemaking side. Some of us are really pure in heart. Some of us you know, are, are better at, at, at being poor in spirit. I believe that Jesus is actually describing the character of a Christian. And the rewards, or the privileges, the, the blessings of a Christian. So please don't say, yeah, yeah well, I'm good at that thing. Like I'm not that good at the meat thing. Like, like some of these other sweet people, they, they, they'll be like, no, 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 no. Either, so, so this is why I say it's a mirror for us where we are constantly, and that's why this is such a great passage for us to reflect on and meditate on. So you have permission this week to, to, to get stuck in this passage and not move on from it for the next week. Like where you just reflect on these eight attitudes, dispositions, because it is a description of a follower of Jesus. So we're peacemakers and they'll be called children of God and, and again, I think Christians have often misunderstood this. This is not talking about false peace. This is not talking about like sweeping things under the rug. In fact, in fact, if you speak to our staff, they'll probably tell you that, that maybe, maybe the thing that I'm the strongest on and the most passionate about, and I will, and I will push hard, ironically, I'll fight hard, for this, is that we don't have false peace. I want us to be, if we're gonna disagree, let's disagree openly, let's let's challenge, let's talk, let's ask, but let's do it respectfully, let's do it with honor, let's talk to the person, not about the person. Gossip just, just destroys relationships. God blesses those who are united, so where there's, it doesn't mean that we all have to agree, So I'm not talking about false peace. I'm talking about actually, so there's a place for healthy conflict. In fact, I think for real peace to exist, most of the time, it actually requires some healthy conflict. Conflict isn't bad. Bad conflict is bad, okay? But we shouldn't ever be contributing towards destructive conflict. Romans 12 verse 18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Again, this, this would be a whole other topic on its own. So, so, so even as you might contend for, the, uh, for, for our faith and for the gospel, don't be contentious. So, so you don't have to be aggressive and, and ugly as you try. And remember, we want to connect before we correct. Blessed are the peacemakers. And lastly, Jesus says that those who are persecuted are actually blessed in the kingdom of God. In other words, there are gonna be times in your life that as hard as you might try to live at peace with some people, they may still re- refuse peace with us. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for this is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you're not blessed. You're not gonna be blessed if you're suffering for being an idiot, or if you're suffering for doing something stupid, or if you're suffering for doing something wrong. That's called punishment. We're not talking about punishment, we're talking about persecution, which is when we're doing the best we can for the cause of christ verse 11 says blessed are you when people insult you persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me and then he says this is how we should react under persecution rejoice and be glad i know that sounds weird because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you i just want to encourage you not to be surprised and not to be discouraged, if and when you come across opposition, when you're not trying to be oppositional, but you're, try- but, but you're also not willing to compromise your faith. And as I draw things to a close, I do wanna be honest and say that I think that where we're headed at this moment in history, I think that we're gonna experience more persecution and opposition. I don't think it's gonna be less. All you have to do is read the news or watch any media to know that, that slowly but surely, the, the agenda of the world and God's kingdom is separating more and more and more. And, and even though you want to graciously disagree at times, again, I've just, got to, I've just got to challenge you that there's something wrong with the picture if we never disagree with people who, who do not value God at all. Like if there's nothing, if there's absolutely nothing in our value system if there's nothing in our opinion if 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 we're able to to justify our value system by our feelings instead of by what God says guys i'm just saying that, that that's that speaks of something else going on in our relationship with god now again i don 't think that we should be known mostly for what we are against and what we oppose but even in our country a law is trying to be passed we where whereas a pastor as a preacher or a teacher you you can be uh you can be prosecuted for reading from the book of genesis that the bible says that in the beginning god created them male and female there's a law that is being considered in south africa that would criminalize that under the guise of being prejudiced or if we're going to read out of 14 where we quote jesus saying i am the way the truth the life where that could be considered as being prejudicial and possibly criminal i'm just saying i don't think that's going to happen soon i think there's a lot of opposition to it but could very well happen one day if that is the case if that becomes criminal do we then change what we believe the bible says do we do we then edit the bible according to this moment in history and then we edit it again at another moment in history or do we actually trust god that if we're loving him first and loving people and doing our best to serve and love and lead from a gracious place that there may be moments in our lives where there is still persecution and be in a sense, okay with that because we are not home yet. I love what one scholar says that the world will undoubtedly persecute the church, but it is the church's calling to serve this persecuting world. Again, that just speaks of the heart. I mean, Jesus didn't hate on people. He's like, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He was gracious to the people that were literally crucifying him. In conclusion, I just want to read a summary of i just described to you from A wonderfully respected scholar who's passed away since writing this, John Stott, but he wrote kind of like a summary of what I've just described to you. He says that the Beatitudes paint a comprehensive portrait of who Christians are to be. We see them first, alone, on their knees before God, blessed are the praying spirit, admitting their spiritual poverty and actually mourning over it. This makes them meek or gentle in all their relationships. are self-controlled. Christians don't just give in to their sinfulness. However, they hunger and thirst for righteousness, longing to grow in grace and in goodness. We see Christians next with others out in the human community. They do not withdraw from society or isolate themselves from the world's pain. On the contrary, they show mercy to those battered by adversity and sin. They are transparently sincere in all their dealings, and seek to play a constructive role as peacemakers. Yet, sometimes, they are not thanked for their efforts, but instead are opposed, slandered, and insulted on account of the righteousness for which they stand and the Christ with whom they are identified. Such are the men and women who are blessed, that is, who have the approval of God, and finds genuine fulfillment as human beings. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to see your heart. Help us to see, Lord, that, that regardless of how at times countercultural this might feel, this is actually the right way around. This isn't upside down. The world has made everything upside down. You're trying to make things right way around again. Will you say that those who are lost will be first, that those who are weak will be made strong, that those who are meek will actually inherit the earth? God, there's something so attractive, so different, so compelling about your kingdom. Lord, we live in the world, but we're not meant to be a part of the world. We're meant to be in it, but yet somehow separated and god i pray that through this series you would help us not to see another list of regulations and legalisms and things to feel bad and, and shamed about. but but god that we would that we would be be drawn into the attractive real life so often god i think we think that the life that the world around us is what is real life but actually it's it's the life that we're living for you, where we are, at work, at school, at home. God, help us to recognize and to respond faithfully to the manifesto of the kingdom of God. Help us to be your followers. Help us to grow in our relationship with you. And help us to ultimately, ultimately, please an audience of one as we seek to please the King. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.